This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast. This week, who are the new assetocracy and why is the Prime Minister bending over backwards to please them? Plus, why is our collective knowledge of Soviet atrocities so poor? And finally, why does London have so many American sweet shops? First up, in the Spectator's cover story this week, Fraser Nelson looks into the main reasons why Boris Johnson has planned to pay for social care with a national insurance tax increase. He says it's to keep property-owning voters happy. But is it morally right to ask the working poor to pay more taxes to help pay for the social care of people who could easily fund it themselves if they would only downsize? Fraser joins me now, along with Kate Andrews. Fraser, the headline on your piece this week is the assetocracy. Can you explain what the assetocracy is? Well, it's a word which you know I sort of coined for this piece to describe not just people who own assets, but their dependents, their children, and their grandchildren. Over the last 20 years, you've seen a phenomenon where um, you know people who aren't particularly wealthy, pensioners who bought in a decent area, have been absolutely amazed to find that a house bought for, say, £200,000 could be worth a million pounds. So they're sitting with this kind of um, jack-in-the-beanstalk-style magic wealth, which has grown up in the back garden. Now, they have not become any richer. I've always been against taxing that wealth because those pensioners don't have any money. They didn't ask for the asset boom. But the family, all of a sudden, has got £800,000 of assets. Now, people will naturally sort of plan around that. So the children, often the grown-up children, will think, OK, we're going to inherit £800,000. And then the grandchildren will think of that as well. Now, these sums can be life-changing. They can be. They can change the way that you plan for the future. They can change how much you, you think you need to save for your pension. And you, you've got so the sheer numbers involved are also, this isn't a small number of people. For the article, um, we did some research and we found that one in four pensioners in Britain is now a millionaire, if you define that by household wealth. A further um, one in four have got assets of half a million pounds. So that's the majority of pensioners in Britain have got houses worth or assets worth at least half a million pounds. Now, if you add to that, that's six million people. Add to that, they're, say they've got average two children, that's an extra 12 million upon that, add their their children, the grandchildren, and you've got a huge kind of um, number of people in this country, perhaps even a third, who are in the slipstream of this massive asset bonus. Now, again, they didn't steal this from anybody, it doesn't make them bad people, this is simply the real politique. But if at any point, if um, somebody gets dementia and needs to go into a nursing home care, that can wipe out a lot of the costs. So this is a huge concern, not just for the person who's likely to get dementia, but for their descendants. And it's turned into a political force, a political force so strong that when Theresa May was bold enough to declare that she would she would ask those rich enough to pay for their care to do so, she pretty much lost her majority. Now the Tories think this um, part of the voters need to be basically protected with cash from the average taxpayer. And Boris did in fact make a firm pledge during the election campaign. Here's a clip. Read my lips, we will not be raising taxes on income or VAT 
or national insurance. On the contrary, what we for are the doing... lifetime of that government. For the lifetime of the, of the Parliament. Kate, what do you make of the rise in national insurance to pay for social care? I think it's lazy. They've taken the Dilnot proposals from a decade ago and they've dressed them up as something that's fit for 2021, not just a decade later, but a pandemic later. Um, and, you know, there's there does seem to be something deeply unethical about the idea that if somebody is unlucky and gets very sick with something like dementia, that they might have to sell their home when somebody else does not. But there's also something really unethical about the idea that taxpayers, many of whom will not have these assets, might be the ones asked to pay to protect those assets. There are countries that do this better. There are countries that have compulsory insurance to allow you to guard against or insure against having to, to sell your home. But we haven't even tried to have that conversation. There has been no debate over the Tories breaking this manifesto pledge, over the Tories claiming that this is a sustainable system. It's simply not. Um, the ratio of, of, of working age people to those over the age of 65 is becoming very concerning. It was around 4.5 in the 1970s. It's now around 3.3, I think, and it's estimated by 2050 to be more like 2 to 1. This isn't sustainable. It's ridiculous that the Prime Minister is selling it as such. It's lazy. And I, I really don't think it's going to solve the problem. Rosie, you speak to an MP who tells you that in every situation we seem to show off the young in favour of the old. But is that not what the Tories always seem to do? <laughs> well, that's the caricature of the Tories. But in the Cameron years, it was untrue. What the Cameron reformers did was cut the tax on the low paid. People on the lowest incomes, their incomes went up the most. And this is, unfortunately, they're being driven to this bribery of the elderly by what they regard as the electoral realpolitik. It's not just the Tories. If you look at the, the Labour governments, um, they were giving the winter fuel payment, free bus travels. These are winter fuel payments to multi-millionaires. They could still be given this bung by the Labour government. And the, the, so Cameron did this treble, um, the treble lock in pensions. That was another bribe. I don't think that pensioners want to be bribed. I think what they want is a country in which their grandchildren have the same opportunities that they had. But when it comes to elections, Labour and the Tories will end up with these bribes thinking that they work. I would question the logic of that. But what this Tory was telling me, it's really interesting, I've spoken to so many Conservatives, especially the younger ones, when I was writing this piece, and they've got this despondent mood where they are deeply uncomfortable, even sick at what they're being asked to do. The notion of having to increase the tax on a care home worker and the minimum wage simply to protect the assets of the person she's caring for. There's something kind of so reverse Robin Hood, so kind of repugnant about that. This is not what drove these people into politics, into becoming Tories, or basically, I mean, who would go into politics thinking that was the right thing to do? But what they do feel is that the young don't vote and the old do. They hate that. They would far rather that the young voted 90% turnout. Um, and at the last election, I think that the young were against the Tories by a ratio of 3 to 1, but the old were for the Conservatives by a ratio of 4 to 1. Now, there are way more over 65s than there are people under 25. So when you've got that demographic, you end up with what's called gerontocracy. This is a sort of just dystopia which Milton Friedman kind of foresaw back in the 50s and the 60s, where the ratio of the working age to the retirement age is such that government basically becomes a mechanism of taking money from the working age and giving it to support them people um, who are not working. Uh, I think there is a danger of that. And I always thought this was 
I've never been a great generational jihadist. I've never believed in this clash between the generations. There is, of course, a far better way of doing it, but the Tories haven't found that way. They've gone for the easy option. Kate, do you think this could backfire for the Tories? Well, they thought the polling was going to be on their side, but snap polling since the announcement has actually suggested that more of the public is opposed to this tax rise than previously thought. Um, This has been a government that has been very much driven by polling. They're obviously not in a place to U-turn now, nor do I think they will, because um, they need more money. Uh, The government is in many ways out of places to find it. They had to break this manifesto pledge to make sure they could get this 12 billion extra pounds it's expected to be every year through the door. But Boris Johnson is going to have a lot to answer for. Um, As Fraser writes in his cover piece this week, it was a young Boris Johnson, I think in 2002, Fraser, who was vigorously uh, campaigning against the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown efforts uh, to to hike national insurance. And now that he's in power, he's doing exactly what they do did. And to be honest, he's gone a lot further with it and he's barely allowed any discussion for it. Now, is this somebody who wrote about principles but isn't willing to act on them? Is this somebody who is still principled on the belief of of lower taxes in a free society but just thinks they're not affordable right now? These are questions he's going to have to answer in the not too distant future. It almost doesn't matter if the election is in 2023, 2024. His own base is going to be asking these questions. Another big thing is what we get for it. Will the NHS increase to 110% capacity as promised? Will your elderly relatives get better access to treatment and better social care? I suspect from these plans, especially on social care, we're not going to see any of that. It's a huge challenge for the NHS, which struggled with waiting times long before the pandemic hit. Boris Johnson's going to have to deliver, otherwise he will have failed on his public policy promises as well as his manifesto pledge. And for a Tory, that's very difficult. But Lara, if you don't mind me turning the tables on you, I mean, you and I were talking about this last night, and you were saying that you think there could be some electoral um, logic in this. Well, I do, I mean, slightly to play devil's advocate, I do think there are probably younger voters who are maybe set to inherit, or not not huge amounts necessarily, but who probably haven't felt like their wages have grown as much as perhaps their parents' generation did. And they probably have given up hope of being able to yeah, afford a or, house or, or, or on house, the strength yeah, of their own earnings, Exactly, right? they just know, I mean, thinking of people even who work here, they know they're not going to be able to buy a house based on their salary. So instead, they may well be thinking well, I'm going to have to rely on some sort of... The bank of mum and dad. Yeah, and, that, and, and, and maybe the Tories have played a, quite a clever move here because on the one hand, they've sort of protected that aspect of it, but also they are allowing people to pay, you know, our generation probably like the idea of paying a bit more tax, really, if they you know, want to kind of support the NHS. That's what people... You know, often talking about. So I don't know. I, I wonder if it's quite a clever move by the Tories. Yeah, because you, you're saying in the, in the bar last night that you think that this is <laughs> this is something people would admit to liking, but they probably will, because nobody particularly wants to say, you know, I'm actually lucky enough that I will be able to get a bank and mum and dad deposit from my house. And this, this Tory change will now make it more likely. It's removed the doubt of dementia coming along and knocking this whole thing down. And, and that's what I mean by the, the, the acidocracy that is in the back of the mind of people that when it comes to buying this house, there is family resource to draw on. Now, this people, people don't like talking about it, obviously, because it's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a big divide in society. But I'm sure there are lots of people who probably do. I, I wonder if there are younger voters who, who perhaps have, 
know, agree with what the Tories and, and, are doing. And we're not talking about the uber-rich here. We're talking about people who were just standard middle class 20 years ago who have acquired this massive big asset boom in their family. And of course, pensioners, by and large, they don't want the money for themselves. They want their grandchildren to be able to afford a house. So within their heart, they will take the assets. They want to see it go. So they're going to make this proposal, not because it makes them richer, because it makes their grandchildren more and, likely. I mean, is it so wrong for those people to want to use their assets to help support their younger members of their family. And this I is what know, Boris Johnson like, was telling the MPs. When he took them, I found out during this article, he took a bunch of them to number 10, various cohorts, younger ones, older ones. And he said to them, look, this is about something fundamentally conservative. It's about the right to the deeply human desire to pass down your assets to your children and your grandchildren to, to keep it within the family. And he's compl- Particularly because that younger generation probably don't have any assets so, and are yeah. not likely to acquire them. Exactly. Look, look at how much interest you get on your, your savings right now. It's a joke. I don't know how long it would take you, the average worker, to save for a pension. You, you've, got, um, you've got the banks that will only give four times earnings for a salary. There are many people up and down the country who wouldn't be able to afford a house on four times earnings. Or, or could only afford some terrible help to buy a house that's but this can afford. Is, not to sound like a broken record, this is why I go back to the word lazy. All of this is true and, and there is something very odd about not being able to pass on your assets to your grandchildren. In fact, this idea that, you know, it's the reason people are so opposed to 100% inheritance tax, the idea that all of the money really belongs to the mm-hmm. state, not the individual, and you just play a game throughout your life and then hand it back. No, that's not how it works. These are your assets. You've, in many cases, worked hard for them, although to the point in Fraser's article, for some people, it's just been a matter of luck. But it's not obvious you should have to sell them on. There has been no creative or dynamic thinking about ways that other countries do this. So you can ensure against that. But uh, and, and Laura, I think you're right. I think a lot of people will quietly be applauding this. But what the conservatives have not quietly done, what they very openly done, is said, we are going to side with the people who have capital. Mm-hmm. And this was the image that they were trying to break away from throughout the Cameron years, really for decades now. Margaret Thatcher allowing people to buy their own home. This was such an important Tory point that you can aspire to more. And now it feels like Boris Johnson is saying, I understand that because of our horrible policies, you can't. So I'm going to double down on them. And a lot of people will be happy. But for a lot of people out there, you know, if you're earning roughly the average British salary, which is now roughly £30,000 a year, we're talking about hundreds extra pounds of tax a year. You know, that that's not going to your savings. It's not going to your buying a house fund. It's going to the government now. It's it's harder now for a lot of people to get on the housing ladder. Yeah, and this is the economic realpolitik, though. The Tories had a choice. Either you try to reform it, or you accept it and run with it, and thinking you're only, the only path to power in Britain now is to basically stand with those with capital. Now, are there are so well, no, many... Un- but they thought their power to, you know, their power... Their root power was um, siding with the Red Wall voters, which they did, and they promised them... Over Brexit, that was a one-trick pony, that. When Brexit goes, they're going to struggle. And you notice there's quite a few Red Wall voters who did not vote for this proposal. Mm. It feels like they're slightly turning on them now, the Tories. Well, that I, I wouldn't read. To, I think it's too, still quite too early to say. Um, and I think these, you know, why I am so incensed about this is because I see a real, real problem in the distortion in the economy that the, that the asset boom has created. I see real problems because eventually young people are going to get so fed up with a system where they cannot hope to earn themselves into the life that their parents and grandparents have that they will vote for a far-left sort of Corbyn character to bring the whole show down. And why wouldn't they? Because the promise of popular capitalism will just seem like a bad joke to them right now. And this was Thatcher's insight that you can't expect capitalism to be popular without people actually having some 
assets and having some capital. What the Tories ought to have done, in my view, is thinking, OK, care homes are a problem. But by the way, there's an unexpected boom in the form of assets. So let's come up with an insurance if they're worried about care. Let's come up with a way so they can spend, I don't know, eight grand buying an insurance policy that will cover their care costs if they get sick. You could do that without asking the minimum wage worker to bail out the rich. Um, And there are lots of other ways of trying to adjust for this unfairness. And by the way, quantitative easing, I didn't mention that in the article, but QE is what makes asset booms in the first place. So the latest round of QE that we just got, because we won't tolerate recessions anymore to get us through the pandemic, that QE is bound to make this problem a lot worse. So anybody with assets, anybody with a house, can expect the house to go up in value quite a lot over the next few years. And they can expect the despair of young people without assets, without access to family resource to deepen. And you can expect the support for sort of far left um, parties to grow. So the Tories, you know, this might even work to get them through the next election if economic boom um, follows the pandemic. But if things go wrong, if there's a crash, then I think the task of the next Labour leader should be a fairly easy one. Thank you, Fraser and Kate. Next up, James Bartholomew has a new project. He is interviewing and recording the stories of survivors of Soviet oppression and torture. In the magazine this week, he tells a few of these stories, but also asks why it is socially acceptable, or even quite cool, to declare yourself to be a communist. James joins me now to discuss his project, along with Constantine Kissin, a Russian-born comic and host of the Trigonometry podcast, whose family had to deal first-hand with the trials of living under a Soviet regime. James, in this week's magazine, you write about why you're helping survivors from the gulags tell their stories. What made you want to start this project? I think the thing that made me want to start was a visit to the House of Terror in Budapest. I came, that's a very powerful museum describing the horrors that took place both by the Nazis, the SS, in Budapest, followed by uh, the communists who took over exactly the same building again in Budapest. And I learned about the tens of thousands of Hungarians who were deported to Siberia, many of whom died. And you had personal account after personal account of people saying, yes, I was tortured, I was underfed, I person next to me was beaten, uh, some of them died, you know, and it's even I had a, you know, a certain element of scepticism, but when you saw one video after another, any scepticism you had disappeared, you began to think, my God, this happened to real people. They really did get beaten. They really did starve to death. This is serious. And then when I came out, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she actually felt so ill there because it's pretty graphic and had to be helped out. And uh, I came out thinking, my children, their friends, don't know anything about this, nothing at all. I mean, I, 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 you know, the huge areas of gaps in my knowledge, but they hardly even have the beginnings of knowledge about it. They are not taught it at school that millions of people died under communism under many regimes. After over, over 20 regimes tried communism, and again and again it ended the same way. And they have no idea about it. And meanwhile, they are being tempted by the apparent appeal of communism. Everybody's equal. It's a sort of peaceful, happy society. That's the the dream of it. But it's not how things have always turned out. And I just want them to have that understanding and knowledge of the history before they decide that it's a great idea. 
Constantine, your grandfather spoke out against the Soviet government and, and had to come to Britain as a result. C can you tell us about his story? Well, I can tell you about his story, but it's probably less interesting than the story of his wife, my uh, grandmother's second wife, uh, who was actually born in a gulag. Uh, she was born in this gulag because both her parents had been uh, there as political prisoners and uh, her dad served 10 years. But because he was useful, uh, he was a mine engineer, he was kept for another three years. As a useful person, however, he was quite fortunate in that he was spared some of the worst abuses, the starvation, the, the beatings, etc., because he was considered useful. But he saw many, many things which were passed down in the family. And in one of the, the camps that he was at, uh, every morning three people would be picked out at random and drowned in the icy lake in front of the rest of the of the people at that camp just to kind of keep everybody in check. And it's interesting that James talks about how uh, how not enough people know about it. Of course, it's, uh, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago a very long time ago, and the details of all of this stuff are almost, uh, to, he, he chronicles everything almost to a boring level of detail. Perhaps that's one of the reasons few people uh, know quite enough about it. But uh, if you speak to most people in the former Soviet Union, almost everybody would have had somebody who was, uh, as we say in Russian, repressed in one way or another uh, by the authorities, a member of the family. It's uh, that my so my my um, grandfather who you mentioned is down my father's side down my mother's side I've got plenty of stories to tell as well it was uh, it was something that affected almost every family in one way or another and uh, it continues to have an impact on on the consciousness of of Russians even to this day I would say James you start your piece with a story about this woman Ivana who you're interviewing who experienced life in a communist gulag how did you find her and how are you going about finding people for your project? It is a matter of one person leads to another and then another and then another. I actually met her through a dance, a dance class with a Ukrainian woman and I said what I was doing and she said oh, you should meet this person from the Ukrainian Association. So I met the person from the Ukrainian Association. He invited me to go to a commemoration for an event which I think is practically unknown in the UK called Holodomor in which 3.9 million people in Ukraine died of starvation and that was encouraged by Stalin and it's pretty well unknown here. Anyway, it was because of that commemoration which takes place each November that I then met Ivana and asked her if she would agree to be interviewed and she agreed to be interviewed. So it's just a question of one person leading to another. Constantine, one of the points that James makes in his piece is that it's almost fashionable nowadays for younger people to say that they are communists. What do you make of that as someone whose family have experienced the actual realities of communism? Uh, what I feel about it is probably unbroadcastable, so I'll just say it makes me want to slap them. But, uh, <laughs> but also, but, but also a joking aside, it makes me want to educate them as well, I think. Uh, there is a big gap in, in, in our knowledge here in the West about the atrocities that, that were committed in the name of communism, which far exceeded uh, those committed even by the Nazis. Indeed, the figure that uh, James just mentioned, uh, the, this Holodomor in Ukraine, more people died, more Soviet citizens died in Soviet Ukraine in those two years than died during the entire murderous Nazi occupation 
of of Ukraine by by the German Wehrmacht, by the SS, by the Einsatzgruppe, and etc. So uh, the the scale of these disasters is completely unknown in the West, and I just think it needs to be. Uh, it need we what we have to do is really remedy the culture of fear of criticizing the Soviets that existed after World War Two and during World War Two, because the reason all of these crimes are known to us is of course that we needed Stalin uh, to win the war, uh, and that is why all of this was concealed. Uh, most people, of course, in the West have read, thankfully, Animal Farm, but very few people have read Orwell's pre uh, preface to, to that book, in which he talks about how much difficulty he had getting it published, precisely because it was very inconvenient to the British authorities and to the West in general at that time to be seen to be criticizing the Soviets. And uh, I'm writing my, my first book called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, in which I detail a lot of this stuff, and I hope that uh, that and the work that James is doing and others will will raise awareness uh, of what this ideology actually means. And of course, James said uh, that the Soviet Union failed to achieve equality. I, I, that's the one thing I think we'd probably disagree. And it was an incredibly equal place and that everyone was equally poor and equally starving and equally struggling. And I think if more people understood that, if um, you know the people who, who talk about communism the most are people who've never been outside the UK, in my experience. Once you start to travel the world a little bit, you begin to see the, the shades of grey in these things. James, one of the things you, you point out in your piece is that a, po a Polish journalist asked you, do you think there is a possibility that modern Britain would turn to communism? And, and you say that you don't expect it, but you want to reduce the chances. I mean, do you think that Britain could become a commun communist country? I do think it's unlikely, but I do think, I think that the complacency that my generation felt. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I lived through the Cold War. I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Wall, and all that. So it was all we all knew about that. People of my generation knew all about it. We didn't need to learn about it in school. And with the complacency we had at that time was, uh, you know, it's obvious that everybody knows that communism has failed. Everyone knows that the 20th century was almost a giant experiment in whether communism would work. And it was clearly demonstrated in this experiment that it does not. So we thought that was over. The game was over. History was over. And now we realize that actually the young people don't know. For them, the history has never took place. And so that's why I just, it's almost like uh, I'm doing this as a kind of insurance. I'm hoping it's very unlikely, but I, I, I just want to be more confident and also for generations to come. It's not just, I'm not just thinking. I mean, whether you're thinking you want to create a museum, you're not just doing it to try and persuade a few people in a, in, a, in a comment article. You're trying to do it so it will last generation after generation, so that it will become core knowledge of people in this country, just as their core knowledge is the Holocaust. They should, everybody should know as part of their basic education that this took place. Constantine, just finally, for people in the UK who may not have fat relatives who've experienced a gulag what what would be your advice as to the best way to educate yourself about this uh, I, I recommend a very short story by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who I mentioned earlier, called A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's a beautiful short story. Take You can read it in a couple of hours. And uh, essentially what it does is it takes you through one person's one day of living in that camp and the things that he had to do just to survive. And the, the odd thing about it, I remember reading it as a kid and it really shocked me, was by the end of the short story, you've forgotten that it was just a day because it is so long and so filled with humiliation and having to negotiate your way through this absolute horror. I recommend we'll start with starting with that and then I think 
uh, the Gulag Archipelago or, or, or that that would be uh, a bigger project. It, it, like I say, it can be quite dense at the beginning. Uh, but start with a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich and see where you get to. James and Constantine, thank you very much for joining. And finally, if you've walked down Oxford Street recently, you may have been a little taken aback to see not one, but multiple American sweet shops taking up some prime real estate. Hannah Moore writes about her confusion with this phenomenon in this week's Spectator. She joins me now along with food trend expert Shakufa Hijazi. Hannah, you write in this week's magazine about this invasion of American-themed candy shops in the UK. Can you start by telling listeners who might not have been to one what exactly they're like? Well, they're frankly an abomination, these ones. <laughs> they're they're, um, they're sh- a bit shocking, actually. I mean, I, I, I thought... I thought I was knew what to expect when I went into one. You know, you've got the Hershey's and the M&M's and the, all the kinds of things that you might expect. But alongside that, I don't know if I'm allowed to use rude words in this. It's okay. You can, you can, use, you can use them. <laughs> but alongside those, you've got like actual sex shop items. You've got edible body paints and cola willies and all sorts of things, just un- almost unnameable things. So it, w- it was quite shocking to go in and, and see that. And presumably the clientele is children, but they, they're they selling, you know, these sex shop items next to next to candy. So it's sort of an overload. It's, a, it's an overload of stimulation. There's rows and rows and rows of uh, the same type of candy, different flavored, pumping loud, completely inappropriate music, and just, yeah, nothing like my childhood of American, American sweets. <laughs> <laughs> Shakifa, have you, have you been to any of these American candy shops? Uh, I will admit that I have popped in from time to, da- to time. <laughs> I actually grew up in Canada, so I've got a soft spot for the odd bit of North American confectionery and, and peanut butter M&Ms in particular, a weakness of mine and not readily available. <laughs> so I, I have gone in when the urge is too strong to resist, yeah. And do you think they're as appalling as Hannah makes out? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I probably... Uh, didn't linger too long in the aisles where there might have been things like edible body paint. I just beelined straight for the peanut butter M&Ms and kept going. Um, I think, listen, they are, there is a lot going on often in them, but, you know, the, the fact that there's a lot going on is one of the things that appeals to a lot of consumers who are just looking for a bit of escapism and distraction. So I think some people walk in and see all the colours and, you know, bright things and exciting things and, and actually quite like it. It's a way to pass the time and sort of peruse and and browse and see what they might fancy as a treat that day. Hannah, as an American who now calls Britain home, are you somewhat offended to see the word America or American in front of a lot of these candy shops? Well, I am annoyed that, yes, I am annoyed that they're sold as such. And I I know they're selling, they are selling American candies, you know, and, and people like a bit of novelty and they might like to go and buy some of the things they might see on American television and things. But I would like it to have been opened by an American or somebody who knows more about what American shops are actually like, or probably Canadian ones, too. I I imagine, I don't know if they sell the same types of candy as Americans, but if you've got peanut butter M&Ms there, then yes, I, I think I, I dislike the um the kind of, it's almost false, false advertising, you know, it's, it's, they're selling American things, but it's not 
the whole experience isn't American. Shakifa, one of the the shops that Hannah also mentions in her piece is M&M World, which she also, I think, is right to say, Hannah, you're quite appalled by. Have you been to that one? Uh, not not for many years. I, I've, I've gone when we've got uh, friends in town with little kids that want to have a little wander around. Again, just looking for a bit of fun and escapism. And can I ask you both what candy you do actually really miss when you're in the UK? Is there stuff, is there American candy that you do find yourself craving? Yeah, I, I, um, I bought Twizzlers from the American candy shop because you just can't get those over here. Yeah, I miss those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mentioned peanut butter M&Ms. Um, I just, I love all things peanuts. So, you know, I, I'm a sucker for things like Reese's peanut butter cups and Butterfinger and all that stuff. The, the Canadian in me wishes that some of the more niche Canadian products might also appear more often. Uh, we've got we've got some funny ones. I don't know, like Coffee Crisp was a favorite of mine when I was little and um, these little turtle shaped chocolates filled with caramel and nuts that seem to be quite hard to come by outside of Canada. But yeah, you know, it, it's everything in moderation, everything in moderation. I do like these things from time to time. And just finally, Hannah, have you, have you been to a traditional British sweet shop? And, and did you enjoy that, if so? I um yes I do I do like uh, I'm not a sweet fan generally but I do like them when they're geared towards children you know when they're uh, when they're tidy and they don't have pounding music and they're kind of neat because it it looks it looks very neat and and um, appealing but yes there I must say there are certain sweets that you do better for example Cadbury chocolate is fantastic compared with Hershey's so you've definitely got that going for you over here. <laughs> Hannah and Shafuka, thank you for coming on. And that's it for the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, please do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Lara Prendergast, and I hope you have a lovely weekend.